This is Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus, exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point, Hedman, right to go, Kudrop. Score! Patrick Kudrop! Well, we want to see that on Saturday for sure as Tampa Bay takes on Philadelphia. And that game has some meaning. It will determine who has the number one overall seed in the Eastern Conference. Of course, if you're just finding out or waking up this morning and you want to know what happened yesterday, well, the Flyers took care of business. Yeah, they downed the Washington Capitals 3-1. to And now it sets up, uh, I think, a pretty meaningful game for both teams tomorrow. Let me bring in the, the radio voice of the Lightning, Dave Michigan. Of course, I'm Greg Linnelli, Steve Ersnick, producing Tim Saunders. He is the Flyers play-by-play man on the radio side. Will join us coming up in about 10, 15 minutes to talk about Philadelphia and why I think they might be arguably, I don't want to say the most dangerous team out there, but boy, they have played some good hockey this year and it's continued during these round-robin games. And Dave, it's interesting because You know, the Caps were called for some penalties. The game was a bit choppy yesterday, but the Flyers are getting some secondary scoring. They're getting just enough goaltending, maybe better than just good goaltending. And um, they continue their good play from pre-pandemic, and it's, it's showing now. They have played very well through the first two round-robin games. And the area where they have played exceptionally well is how they have defended. They didn't give the Bruins much. I know the Bruins finished with 30-some-odd shots, but a lot of those came late when they pulled the goalie. And at that point, they were down 4-1. to one. I shouldn't say a lot of those, but they, they upped their total in the last couple of minutes when they had a 6-on-5. Yeah. But the game was out of reach. And then yesterday, they held the Capitals to only 17 shots. So... They are playing very well without the puck. And when they have the puck, they're managing it well and limiting turnovers. They are making life very good, if not easy, good for their goalies. And they've played both Carter Hart and Brian Elliott through the first two round-robin games. And they've earned their four points. There's no question. Now, you can't control who you play. But I did not get the sense in either of the games, and I watched both of the Flyers games in the round robin against Boston and against Washington. I did not feel that these were anywhere close to the intensity level that the Lightning have had in their two games. And maybe some of that is the Flyers. Like they're defending so well that it feels methodical. That's a compliment to them. But the temperature of those games involving the Flyers has been lower than the Lightning had with the Caps and with the Bruins. That is not going to be the case when they get into a playoff series, which is what the Lightning were talking about heading into the round robin. They wanted to replicate playoff-like intensity. I don't feel like the Flyers have had a playoff-like intensity type game yet. They will, if not against the Lightning, they will when they get into their first-round series. But they can't really control that. You can't force 
high intensity, right? It either happens or it doesn't. The other part is they've caught these two teams not at their best. And again, they can't control that, and they have maybe have contributed to that narrative by how well they have played. But Boston is finding itself. And the Bruins took a step forward against the Lightning, but they were still searching futilely, as it turned out, in that first game against the Flyers. And the Caps, look, the Caps didn't have John Carlson in the game against the Lightning. And I thought they didn't play very well, really, up until the point they tied the game (laughs) against the Lightning. We've talked about that, Greg. And then they had a really good third period. But they kind of looked yesterday like the team the Lightning saw for a period and a half plus. But they didn't have John Carlson. And they didn't have Lars Eller, who left the team with permission. His wife is giving birth. So he's going to have to go through kind of a mini quarantine when he returns and presumably he would be back in time for their first playoff game, if not for the game on Sunday, which I'm not even sure. Cause you have to have four straight negative tests. I'm not sure if the timing would work out for Eller to play on Sunday when the caps play the Bruins. But my point is that I don't think they've gotten their opponent's best shot yet, but some of that might be the flyers too. It's hard to tell. So I go back to my original point. They they deserve what they have gotten, but I'm curious to hear from Tim if, when we have him on, the Flyers feel that they have gotten what they've wanted to get out of their first two round-robin games outside of the victories. Clearly, they want the wins, and they're playing very well. But have they been pushed? I guess that's that's the question. And you know in a series you are going to be pushed in a playoff series. So I don't really feel like the Flyers have had to deal with the same level of adversity that, say, the Lightning have, where the other team has pushed, rallied. They've had to kind of withstand a momentum surge. And credit to the Flyers that they haven't let the other team really back into the game. The closest they had was Boston scored late second to make the game 2-1, and like five seconds later off the faceoff, Phil Myers scored, and it was 3-1. It was pretty much lights out. That's basically been it. So that is that is the one kind of caveat I have about the Flyers' journey to this point, but that's through no fault of their own. You can't control who you play or what state that team is in when you face them. You can only play the games that are on your schedule, and that's what they've done, and they've done very well in that regard. Yeah, and they're getting some depth scoring, too. The they Kevin are. Hayes line has been very good for them. Scott Lotland, Travis Konechny, who I always felt like was a, a pretty skilled player, Dave, that's that's gritty, and you factor in Kevin Hayes. I remember having Sam Carcitti on when they had Hayes, and then they signed him that long extension, pretty expensive one too. And you know they were dealing with some issues with uh, Nolan Patrick and the migraines, and the, you know the question was, well, what is Kevin Hayes? Is he a he's being paid like a, a top six forward, but you know maybe his statistics indicate that he's not that guy or maybe borderline. And he basically said, you know, they overpaid for him because of the uncertainties dealing with Patrick and his headaches. And, you know, he had what, 23 goals this year, which is decent, but it's not at the level you would expect somebody getting paid what he is getting paid. But it was interesting that Carcitti admitted that, look, he's a good player. He's a good playmaker. He kills penalties, no question. But in some ways, Philadelphia 
was in a situation where they had to probably overpay for a guy like that because of the uncertainties dealing with one of their younger players who they hope will be in the lineup at some point, but you never know. You're right. And I mean, look, it's hard to it's hard to when you are into a <clears throat> excuse me, a playoff series or in round robin in this case, start gauging contracts and contract worth of a player, a contract's worth of a player when that player is performing. I mean, right. all we can go off is what is Kevin Hayes doing on the ice and whether he's quote unquote overpaid or underpaid, he's still producing. And that line really drove the bus for the Flyers yesterday. And Hayes was right in the middle of it. And he made a steal on Gudis and set the first goal in motion. A great pass to Sanheim during a four-on-four on the second goal. And then he had an assist on the third goal as well. And, you know, for years it's been... Drew Voracek, and then they put Couturier with those guys in recent years, and that's been a very dynamic, effective top line for the Flyers. This second line looks really good, and I've always liked Konechny. I mean, he, he reminds me of Gallagher on Montreal. They, yeah. they wear the same number. They're both right-wingers. They're, they play bigger than maybe their, their size measurements. They're pesky. They get under the skin of the opposition. They're around the net. They're tenacious. But he's found two guys to play with, and that's been a very dynamic line, too. You know, Scott Lawton was the number one pick, and it always seemed like he was one of these number one picks who could never crack the top six. Now, like, you wonder, well, why do they take him in the first round? You know, is there something here that, that we're missing or – is it a situation where they knew what they were getting, but they they wanted that player and they felt he could be effective not in a top six role? Well, he's a top six forward now. And, you know, he scored in overtime against the Penguins in the exhibition. He scored again yesterday. He is playing probably like the guy they expected they were going to be getting when they drafted him in the first round. So, you know, that's part of the equation. But I think the biggest thing is the structure that Elaine Vigneault has instilled in this team and how they were able they went nine and one before the pause and in fact they won nine in a row they lost their last game before the pause to the Bruins and then they were coming to Tampa the Flyers were to play the Lightning the day they paused the season so it's not like a fluke right it's not completely out of the blue that they they are coming back maybe it's it's good on them that they're able to rediscover that team structure that brought them so much success, particularly in the second half of the regular season, so quickly now that we're into this restart. But this is what they were doing, certainly, you know, once we turn the calendar back in January, February, and March, and why they got to the the top four. Because they were not in the top four in the first half of the season, kind of like the Lightning. They had a really strong second half to get there. And now they're poised to be the the top seed if they can win the game against the Lightning on Saturday. Yeah. And it's funny how we were talking about some teams to keep an eye on before we take a break and get to Tim, is that the Flyers really, I think, intrigue both of us because they're one of those teams that has always had some skill, but there's always been a couple of bigger question marks when it comes to that team, in my opinion, at least, and that's been goaltending and 
you know, defense. And I think their structure has helped with both of those. And to your point, Vino might have been a bigger difference than most anticipated. But we'll talk to Tim about that when we return. If you want to react to anything we've had to say in that opening segment, you can at Greg Linelli, at Dave Mishkin. So glad you're with us here on a Friday. We'll talk to Tim Saunders when we return. It's Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. The perfect social distancing distraction for your lunch hour. This is Power Lunch, only on Lightning Power Play on the iHeartRadio app. All right, so glad you're with us here on a Friday as we get you set for the weekend. It's going to end up being a pretty good game tomorrow between the Lightning and Flyers. Both teams playing very well post-pandemic. And to talk about the Flyers a bit more, let's welcome into the program the radio voice of the Flyers, Tim Saunders, joining Greg Manelli and Dave Michigan. Tim, first off, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. And, boy, the Flyers uh, post-pandemic, um Looking pretty good. You know, it wasn't a, a pretty game, so to speak, against the Caps, but all that matters is you, you get the win in, in advance. Yeah, you know, the Flyers were in a no-win uh, or a no-lose position coming in as the fourth seed uh, in the Eastern Conference because they can only move up. And Elaine Vigneault decided to take kind of a big-picture approach, which I assume the other three coaches of those teams are doing. Use those games to be ready for when it really counts and you're playing for your lives. Uh, nice to move up, but that's less important than getting your team ready and kind of knowing who you can rely on or lean on when the need arises. So, so far, so good. I think they're thrilled to have already clinched no worse than the second seed. So obviously they've moved up. More importantly, uh, I, I think they have gotten better with every game and it looks like they're revving up to where they were uh, just before the pause. You mentioned Vigno. He is a Jack Adams finalist for the Coach of the Year Award. And I'll tell you, he was on my ballot. The broadcasters vote on that. What has he brought to this team this year? Dave, it's hard to articulate the impact that one guy, especially a coach like this, can have. Although I think back and and look at the difference that Barry Trotz made for the Washington Capitals. I mean, it's been that stark. From day one, he knew exactly what he wanted. He want, he knew how he wanted things run. Um, so he was very in control. So that in itself, I think, demands instant credibility uh, from, from the players and respect. But the key word is accountability. And, and I think maybe what separates Vigneault from other coaches that I've seen is his ability to demand that accountability and at the same time instill confidence in guys and have guys want to play for you. I mean, it's easy for guys to be uh, you know, a hard-ass coach and, and come down hard on guys and be demanding that way, but they also need to want to play for you when push comes to shove. And he's been able to walk that fine line as well as anybody I've seen. You know, Tim, I've always felt like growing up in Pittsburgh and watching the rivalry unfold between Pittsburgh and the Flyers. The Flyers always had, I thought, a very skilled offensive team, really high-end players, and maybe sometimes the question, as you know in Philly, would be, what are you going to get on the, on the back end, and what's the goaltending going to look like? And maybe this ties into what Vino has done, but it seems like 
they feel pretty good about their goaltending situation. Their back end is playing a lot better, but maybe team defense is a lot better than over the years. Is that a fair assessment? And is that the difference between maybe this year's team and teams in years past? Well, I think it's one of the big differences, and you're you're absolutely right that they prioritize getting better defensively, and especially five on five, and and they've achieved that right off the bat. I say they because it's been a team effort between Elaine Vigneault and uh, the general manager Chuck Fletcher. Now, what I love about Fletcher is that I mean, other than just being a class guy and 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 being good to everybody around and being collaborative, I guess is the best word that I've used to describe him. Uh, what I love about him is he is quick to point out that, hey, somebody else was here before I was to set the table here. And he's referring to Ron Hextel because this team needed to restock the organization and kind of tear it down a little bit to build it back up. And Hextel did that heavy lifting. And oftentimes it's somebody else to take the team over the finish line and they found it necessary. Management found it necessary to, to kind of quicken the timeline. Hextall was resistant uh, in, in changing his long-term timeline. And that's what led to his firing and Chuck Fletcher's hiring. But Fletcher's uh, uh, quick to point out that, hey, a lot of this is what Hextall put in place before I got here. Uh, you said you're a Pittsburgh fan. From a goaltending standpoint, I liken it to how the Penguins must have felt when Marc-Andre Fleury came in uh, as it relates to the goaltender. And, and we're all in a position at that point to not try to raise expectations too quickly on a young goaltender. Even if you think that, man, we got a kid that, really could be something special. And I think that's kind of the attitude in Philadelphia. You, you don't want to get carried away. Uh, it's been a long time since the Flyers have had uh, a goaltender that they thought they could really build a franchise around. So you're, you're trying not to get carried away with that. But I think Carter Hart may be the guy. And I think that's the feeling here in Philadelphia. You had mentioned how the Flyers wanted to use these round-robin games to get ready for their first playoff series. The Lightning have said the same thing. We've heard similar comments from these other round-robin teams. Aside from the two wins, and you even just said that they are what they are, like you're glad to have them, but that's not the top of the priority list. Do you feel that the Flyers have gotten out of the two round-robin games what they wanted to at this point? Yeah, I think for the most part, uh, they wanted to get back to, you know, it's the old adage, we want to play the game the right way. And every coach, I guess, defines that a little differently. But in what Elaine Vigneault has put in place, the right way here means defensively responsible. Everybody's playing by the same rules, meaning uh, there are no guys out there freelancing. Uh, being defensively responsible, but at the same time creating offense with a good forecheck and sticking with the system that he's gotten into place. And I think, I, I, I said they've progressed, they've gotten better at that in every game they've played. Uh, were they in midseason form? Have they been in midseason form the first three games? Absolutely not. So that's encouraging that there are things that they can still get better at. The power play right now would be the first thing. 
because they were 0 for 6 last night. I think they're 0 for 9 since uh, the round robin started. Uh, they always say PK rhythm comes before power play rhythm, and it just hasn't happened yet. But they've won two games. They've won all three games since they uh, opened the bubble or started in the bubble, including the exhibition game. So I think there's reason to be optimistic. Tim Saunders joins us here on Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play, talking about the Flyers and the game tomorrow between Tampa Bay and Philadelphia. Tim, is it fair to say that Kevin Hayes might be the most important two-way player on that team? Maybe not the most skilled guy and certainly isn't going to score the most goals, but it feels like he gives them that balanced attack to complement the first line, gives them enough scoring to be a threat, but also what he can do defensively and some other things as well. Yeah, I think we thought that at the pause, and we may feel that even more now because uh, this the best way to describe this Flyers team is that they are not star-dependent. They don't have anybody on the top 30 in scoring. It's a team approach, and it's the depth that they think will push them over the top. And boy, the first two games uh, in the bubble have really underscored that because the Flyers' top line of Giroux, Couturier, and Jake Voracek haven't scored. Now, they've shut down two pretty good lines going head-to-head with Boston's top three and Washington's top three last night. But you need scoring somewhere, and boy, it's the newly constructed second line that's provided it, and Kevin Hayes is in the middle of that. Now, he's been playing with Travis Kadechny for a while now in that role, the addition of that second line has been Scott Lawton uh, uh, most recently, and Lawton's been their leading scorer. He scored in every game. In fact, he had two against Washington uh, the other night or last night. So um, that second line has carried them offensively. I wouldn't say they've carried the whole team because you have to be able to shut down the opposition's top lines in order to have success. But, boy, it gives the Flyers a little bit more confidence that they don't have to be so star-dependent to be successful. Tim, we had a lot of time, more time than maybe we knew what to do with, to talk hockey before we had hockey. We had several months. But as we started to to ramp up, we were speculating on our show heading into this round, Robin, how the Lightning would handle their lineup would they either kind of go with what we would expect to be their game one lineup, so that lineup plays the most, or do they understand that they're going to need some guys who maybe fill depth role positions, D7, D8, forward 13, and you work those guys in because you may need them and you want them to get game reps. And at least for the Lightning, we've seen one lineup change which is competition-based in our mind. Ruda has played a game and Bogosian has played a game. The Flyers made some lineup changes from game one to game two, understanding Raffle got hurt, so that was a necessary change. Do you get the sense that Vigneault wants to give his depth guys reps and that's why they came in? Or is it more about, we have competition for spots here and I want to see who plays the best to determine what my game on lineup is going to be. Yeah, I think it's a combination of those two with the caveat or the addition that you also can use uh, playing time as a motivator. Uh, If you've got somebody through the first couple of games who you 
don't think is quite to the level he needs to be. And you need to motivate him, uh, demand that accountability, as we said was the key thing. Then, then maybe you take the opportunity to sit a guy. Uh, they sat James Van Riemsdyk last night against Washington. And I think that's a little bit of a shot across the bow. By the same token, though, you're right. If you're expecting a long playoff run, you know the playoffs are a battle of attrition. You're going to have injuries. You're going to have to rely on some of that depth that you have outside the lineup, maybe when things start. So to be able to expect those guys to feel like they're a part of it and be ready to jump in when the when they get the opportunity, you got to kind of build that a little bit. Uh, Connor Bunneman was a good example of that last night. He replaced Van Riemsdyk. Bunneman's probably not going to be in the lineup when the Flyers start their first-round playoff series. He could very well be soon after that, depending on how things go. So I think that's an example. Here in Philadelphia, maybe Shane Gostisbehere, uh, young defenseman Mark Friedman might be examples on the back end that you got to keep them in the mix. you got to keep them feeling like they're a big part of what's about to happen here uh, if you want to rely on them down the road. And Tim, it really feels like the, the third and fourth lines of the Flyers not only understand their role, but if it's a heavy uh, lines that certainly can lay the thump, whether it's uh, the guys that you just mentioned or Derek Grant and some of these other guys that have a little bit of skill, but they'll bang you every once in a while, won't they? And, and that's exactly what you want come playoff time. Yeah, again, the Flyers are not a hugely physical team, and they don't have a heavyweight tough guy, but it's more of a team-tough approach. And, and that aggressive forecheck has created a lot of offense for this club. And you can change momentum that way, even if you don't score. And those third and fourth lines, we all know, in a playoff series, sometimes the Stars can tend to cancel each other out, and it might be those third or fourth line guys that help decide a series, and I think the Flyers are in a better situation uh, now than they have been in a long time in that regard. Speaking of Derek Grant, he came in at the deadline, as did former Lightning forward Nate Thompson, who gave the Lightning several really productive seasons. How helpful have those guys been to what the Flyers are trying to do here? Well, you know, uh, you, you want your general manager at the deadline to, uh, if you think you're in a position where you might be able to win, you're hoping that he can find a couple of final pieces. GMs usually say you're not going to find a guy that will single-handedly win you a series and make you a star team, but you can sure find some complimentary pieces, and that's what uh, Chuck Fletcher did at the deadline. Uh, Nate Thompson is a guy that, you know, look at his career and how many times he's been moved at the deadline. He's a guy that clubs want to have for a long playoff run. He's a veteran. He fits well in the room. He provides a role deep in your lineup, a fourth-line center here in Philadelphia, and he's been really effective. We only saw him in seven games in the regular season before the pause, but I think what he's shown in the first two games under the bubble is a pretty good indication that he has cemented a spot probably in this lineup. Derek Grant probably has a little bit more uh, high end as far as what he can provide offensively, but he does all the other things and has been a real good uh, fit in the middle of the third line. It allows the Flyers to move some people around into other roles that maybe they can be more successful, like Scott Lawton. Lawton had been playing the middle, 
Now he's on the wing on that second line and has really uh, sparked that second line. So there's a trickle, in this case, kind of a trickle-up effect, but those two guys uh, were huge additions for what the Flyers think is ahead. Tim, before we let you go, what do you make of uh, the league coming back up to this point, what the plays look like and uh, how the players have adjusted to being in a bubble and, and playing multiple games on uh, one or two sheets of ice to see how that, uh, that ice looks? Well, the whole thing is different, right? Um, <laughs> it's unique circumstances, and not everything was going to be perfect or normal, what we used to consider normal. Uh, if you're the Boston Bruins, I think maybe you have reason to say, hey, wait a minute, we were the President's Trophy winners. We worked hard all year to earn that number one seed in the Eastern Conference, and now a little uh, round robin's going to threaten to take that away, and obviously it has now. Um, I, I think even the Bruins concede you know, under these uh, weird times, nothing is going to be normal. It's not going to be perfect, but let's just get back to playing hockey. I think the play probably has been more intense in the qualifying series than we've seen in the round robin. That's probably to be expected because, again, those coaches are approaching it a little bit differently. But I'll tell you what, what the league has done here not only to create the bubbles and to create this made-for-TV-slash-radio tournament that we're uh, in the middle of now uh, has been absolutely amazing. And the fact that they've tested what they said the other day, over 7,000 tests have been performed in the bubble and not a single positive result. That's just incredible to me, especially with what's going on with some of the other sports. They've done it right. It's cost a lot of money. And it's been a huge undertaking. But, man, the tip of the hat to the NHL and the NHLPA for coming together to create this. Tim, outstanding stuff. We appreciate you taking the time today. Have a great call tomorrow, and we'll talk to you down the road. We look forward to seeing you guys soon, but uh, good luck on your playoff run. Thanks, Tim. All right, that is Tim Saunders joining us here on the show. And, uh, Dave, anything stick out for you before we go to break when it comes to the chat we had with Tim? I mean, I think some of the things you and I have hit on about the depth, maybe Vino making a difference, and Elliot had the starts uh, yesterday against uh, the Caps. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, Hart and, and where they are with him and, and how well he bounces back going against a very skilled team. But it does feel like it's a different Flyers team than in years past. Well, two things that he said caught my ear I guess more than more than the other stuff that he said which was also interesting he said first he does not feel they are back to where they were prior to the pause where they went nine and one and I guess it's a little surprising because they've been really dominant if that's the right word to use in these two round robin games now I spelled out why I thought that was the case that they were really on top of their game and their opponent looked a little off and again, I think the Flyers had something to do with that, but he feels they are not yet at the point that they were at before we paused the season. And he would know better than me, certainly. I mean, he watches every minute of every game that they play. And the other part that was interesting, I wasn't exactly sure why Van Riemsdyk was scratched. Now, I had kind of seen reports that JVR scratched, <laughs> but... Was that like a Bogosian type situation where they, you know, sat him out for a game because they wanted to look at somebody else? 
or they wanted to give somebody a rep. But he said flat out, that's a shot across the bow. Yeah. And Vino wants Van Riemsdyk to elevate his play, essentially. That's what he said. So that was, I don't know what I was surprised by that, but it was illuminating and clarified exactly why they made that lineup change for, for the game against the Capitals yesterday. And I think you can do that when you have a team that is not so reliant on James Van Riemsdyk. You know, you have some options. And when you have options you're more inclined to sit somebody who's not performing. In other words, if, if Philadelphia had really been struggling to score and they weren't getting depth scoring, you know, maybe you keep a guy like that in the lineup until he figures it out. But now you have some competition, maybe some other guys that are doing a better job or more importantly, doing what Vino wants them to do. And, you know, you can get away with sitting a guy like that who's been a pretty productive player throughout his career, ironically starting with Philadelphia. So it's interesting to see how that dynamic unfold so if you want to react to anything that tim had to say in that segment you can at greg Linelli at dave mishkin we'll come back with our final segment what do you make of the game tomorrow tampa bay philadelphia do you like where tampa bay is right now and do you have an opponent you'd like to see tampa bay take on in that first round more so than somebody else we'll discuss that when we return right here on lightning power play an hour of hockey talk to get you through social distancing. This is Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Tell you what, Dave, I woke up this morning prepping for the show. And, you know, Twitter, I've told you for various reasons, really can be a cesspool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you keep going back. <laughs> I know, I keep going back. That that What does that say about me? But I do think and this maybe is a contradiction, it, it depends on who you follow, too, particularly well, and it's, in sports. It's a, great, it's a great source to get information That's it. quickly. It and is. There's no doubt. It is. Yes. And, you know, in the sports world, you don't really have to fact-check that too much. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. you know, if you're following it for other things, you understand what I mean. I mean, you have to, you have to do a little bit of homework. But for sports, look, if the Blue Jackets beat the Maple Leafs 4-3 in overtime – that's there's not there's not much there to dispute and it's fun to read some of the analysis from everybody that followed that game because I, I did not watch it but we do know that Columbus is up 2-1 I know you did and of course I think it's always fun to see Toronto struggle um, because we know they panic and the the first sign of some adversity sometimes uh, world is is caving and there's certainly an organization that is trying to to get beyond the first round here with that core group of players that they have in place but the blue jackets game by all indications was very entertaining and getting some decent goaltending but a hat trick in that game for columbus is they're up now 2-1 in that series well you know what i thought of and i bet a lot of lightning fans did Columbus Blue Jackets down 3 nothing in a game halfway through the second period, and they come back and win 4-3. Now they won in overtime in game one against the Lightning last year. They, they pulled off the comeback in regulation. But, yeah, the network had a stat that Columbus had not had a three-goal comeback. Like, a, if they had been down three goals at any point this year, they had not even rallied to tie to get the game tied at any point. Now, they struggled offensively relative to their team defense, which was the strength of their team this year. 
But for them to do it now two years in a row in the playoffs and completely turn the tables on the Maple Leafs in a short series where now, I mean, we can get into the game, but just think about this, Greg. That game goes into overtime, deep in the first overtime. So they almost played four full periods. The winning team is going to be a game away from advancing. The losing team is going to face elimination. And they're coming back tonight to play game four. The schedule worked out that their back-to-back was game three to game four. So I don't know if that's better for the Leafs or worse for the Leafs. They don't have much time to dwell on the disappointment of how that game unfolded. But they also have to find a way to bounce back quickly. And the the one kind of common scenario that I can remember that the Lightning were involved in and they were on the other side of it, Tyler Johnson scored that buzzer beater goal against the Canadians in game three of the 2015 playoff second round. That was a devastating loss for the Canadians because it put the lighting up 3-0. And they were coming back 24 hours later. That was a back-to-back game three to game four. And the Canadians blew out the lightning in game four. Now, the lightning ended up winning the series in six. But the Canadians pushed back immediately and didn't dwell on the gut punch of how that game three ended. Let's see what happens tonight with the Leafs because this is going to take some heavy lifting between the ears to be able to push back. And for the Blue Jackets to understand, they have a chance to win this series now. So let's see how they respond. In addition to the fatigue factor, because you're playing you know, four periods and you're coming back less than 24 hours later, and how will the lineups be constructed? But look, that was a very entertaining game, particularly late third into overtime once it became 3-3. I did not feel like the Blue Jackets were dominating things when they mounted their comeback. It was 3-1 for probably seven or eight minutes into the third period, and they didn't really have a lot going on. And then Jones scores to make it 3-2, and the, the play opened up. And then the Blue Jackets got some wind at their back, and it was a bad pinch by a young defenseman, Travis Dermott, of the Leafs that led to a two-on-one where Dubois scored to tie the game, and then it's then you're writing a completely new chapter. But both teams had several chances to win the game in overtime. And the winning goal, I would love to hear a breakdown of this from, from an analyst or from one of the coaches because it's an odd man rush for Columbus following a turnover by the Leafs in the offensive zone. But I watched the replay once or twice. So John Tavares gets the puck from Tyson Barry kind of in the high slot. So he's the third forward high. The other two forwards are down low where they should be because Tavares is the guy, if the puck gets turned over, he's the guy to come back to to make it a three-on-three, right? Mm -hmm. He gets the puck and turns, and Alexander Texier knocks it off his stick immediately. Like, he doesn't even have time to react. So I don't know if that was – was that – Tavares's error was it Barry's error should Barry not have given him the puck was it just a great play by Texier reading the play and getting on Tavares immediately I mean it's not like Tavares had an unforced turnover there he got the puck he wheels and it's off his stick immediately he's caught flat-footed Blue Jackets are going the other way with three forwards coming against the two Leafs defensemen 
The other thing that happened was the other defenseman, Morgan Riley, it's slight, but he steps in a stride from the blue line as the pass is coming to Tavares because he's probably anticipating Tavares is going to get it. Maybe he gives him a touch pass. He's in an open spot to step in, maybe to the circle. Instead, it gets turned over. Riley's a great skater, but that extra step that he took created a little bit more of a lopsided odd man rush. So it was a kind of a three on two, kind of a two on one. Riley's trying to get back. And then the last part of the play, because it is a two on one and Barry is the one defenseman who's fully back and he's playing it like you're supposed to, like he's in between the two forwards, but Dubois is slightly ahead of the other forward and he gets the puck early, like in the neutral zone and he just takes off and blows past Barry, and it turns into a breakaway. So if you're Toronto, you can probably live with a three-on-two, and while it's not ideal, a two-on-one is at least something that you might be able to, to break up. We've seen that happen. But Dubois turned that odd man rush into a breakaway, and he's finding that gear at the end of four periods. And then his finish, he goes – backhand roof into the top of the net. I mean, that was just spectacular on on the part of Dubois, who had a monster game, scoring three goals. He had a hat trick. He was called out by Torts in game two, so that made it an interesting storyline, too. Uh, I thought that was just a really, like, the entertainment value from that game was off the charts, and I know the Leafs are are devastated and their fans are, are feeling low today because of how that game unfolded. They had their chances, too. There was a stretch in overtime where Columbus couldn't get the puck out of the defensive zone. And Matthews and Marner and Tavares, they all had good looks at the net and just couldn't couldn't finish. And the other part was they brought in Merzlikens when it was 3-0. So here's a team, Columbus, that has a 1A, 1B, right? And we're like, how is this going to work? You know, would, would Torch switch goalies from game to game? He switched the goalie in a game. And it worked. It sparked his team. Well, and this is John Tortorella, who I feel like every so often he'll have moments like this where his teams either overperform or, you know, they they surprise some people. And obviously we don't have to reflect back on what happened last year against the Lightning, but, you know, Columbus and and all the the players that departed, Dave, and and the roster that they have and maybe some of the uncertainties in goaltending – to be able to get his team in this position. It's interesting comparing the two, Toronto and Columbus, and what are the expectations? Toronto spends a lot of money on high-end guys, and certainly they have question marks when it comes to their back end and maybe a lesser extent to how they're playing. Columbus, maybe not as much with John Tortorella and how they want to play. And you wonder... If Toronto loses, A, would this be, to this point, in the top two or three biggest surprises so far so far in this tournament? Look, if Pittsburgh loses to Montreal, I think that might be the biggest story. Montreal, by its record and points percentage, I think is the worst team in the league in terms of the teams that are remaining. So that would certainly be a, a head-scratcher, and as I've told you before, Dave, I think you can make the strong argument that Pittsburgh, with their last two playoff appearances, basically if they were to lose today, 
That's one playoff win in two years with a, a core of Malkin, Crosby, and Latang. that's, for a lot of people, unacceptable. You're talking about one one playoff win in a game, not even yes. a series. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Um, so that would be that would be an interesting conversation about changes that need to be made. But I, I think that's the price sometimes you pay, as you as I've pointed out to you. Is there is there a decline that we're going to see here with Pittsburgh? Because you can only stay on top so long, and eventually you're going to have to retool. But with Toronto. That core is still relatively young. Now, it's all basically up front, except with uh, Morgan Riley on the back end. But what do you do if you're Toronto and you're facing salary cap issues? Your team is probably structured where it's too much offense and relying too much on your goaltender. And that formula just hasn't gotten you the results based off of what you're paying a lot of these guys to perform so if columbus wins that series i'm curious to see if there are decent sized changes coming to toronto based off of not only this series against columbus but also what we've seen over the last couple of years the reality is that for a lot of teams and the maple leafs are one of them the lightning are another the capitals are another the flat cap is going to create cap problems during the offseason. And for the Leafs, maybe even had the cap gone up as it was projected to before the pandemic hit, they might still have had some cap issues. So whether they lose the series or win the series, go deep in the playoffs or don't, that's going to be a, a tough nut to crack for them and for a lot of teams. The first point you brought up, though, the matchup with Columbus. This is not an easy matchup for Toronto. Columbus was the nine seed. They were the eight seed. They're only separated by a few points. Columbus got healthy. You remember Seth Jones was injured when we paused the season. They had a lot of injuries as a club, including to both of their goalies at different points. So Columbus is coming off a, a pretty successful playoff run a year ago where as we know they shocked the lightning and they took the Bruins to six games I think you gain experience and confidence from going through situations like that and having some success and the series is not over I mean let's be clear about that same for Pittsburgh you know in a short series you can be up against it really quickly but you can also come back really quickly too was it, Dave was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor <laughs> <laughs> Oh, another fine movie <laughs> reference. We're going farther back in time, though. We, we talked are. about we Groundhog are. Day, early 90s. Right. So now you're going to like 1978, right? That's right. Well, that's when all the good movies happen. <laughs> yeah, Steve's going to look up when Animal House came out. But Toronto still has time to come back and win this series. But even if the Leafs do not, this was never going to be a quote-unquote easy series against a quote-unquote inferior opponent. It's a different opponent. Clearly, the Blue Jackets don't have the – they have high-level player, players and, and high-skill players. We saw that from Dubois, and Cam Atkinson scored a lot of goals in the NHL. They have skill. Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski are two elite defensemen, not only how they defend, but also what they can do offensively. I'm not saying that. But clearly, the Leafs have some super elite talent 
up front and offensive depth and a capacity to score that the Blue Jackets have not shown during the regular season. But on the other hand, the Blue Jackets are extremely tight and structured defensively. And that is not something that has been a strong suit, at least to this point, of the Leafs. Although, as I say that, I actually liked the way they were playing when it was 3-1. I didn't really think Columbus had much going, and the, and the Leafs were were handling that game pretty well. I did see a quote afterward from Sheldon Keefe, their head coach, where he didn't like the way they were playing the whole game, even when they were up 1-0, 2-0, So I'll defer to him on that. <laughs> Certainly, he knows his team and, and knows what he expects from them. But if you were to classify the strengths of the Blue Jackets and the strengths of the Maple Leafs, they are different, but they both have strengths. And that's how they're able to finish 8th and ninth yeah. in the Eastern Conference. So I would not look at this as a shocking, completely out-of-the-blue result if the Blue Jackets do, in fact, get the last game and, and win the series. But it would still be a huge disappointment for the Maple Leafs, not only because, again, they they would not win a playoff series where they've lost in the first round each of the last three years, but also because they had game three. I mean, they were up 3 nothing, And if they win that game, now they're a game from advancing. So, again, we 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 can speculate, but we don't know exactly how this, this story is going to end until the games are, are actually played. And we learned that. Last night, like if you shut your your television off halfway through the second period when it's 3 nothing Toronto, you're like, all right, the Blue Jackets didn't score in game two. This game's following the same script. Yeah. It's going to be 2-1 Leafs, and you would be surprised if, like you, you woke up this morning and checked the final score. But that's why sports are so compelling and engaging one of the many reasons because you don't know how each particular game is going to end how each story is going to unfold it's not scripted and that's when so many things out there today are considered fake and you're not sure what to believe sports for the most part is very very real it's as real as you're going to get when it comes to real life and it's it's fun to watch. Anything else surprise you? I know when we talk about the round robin tournaments, the Golden Knights beat the Blues um, yesterday. St. Louis zero and two. But you know, again, I, I don't know how much stock we're putting into that. I think Pittsburgh Montreal certainly stands out right now with where Montreal finished and where Pittsburgh was. Coyotes. You know, they're up 2-1 against the Preds, you know, with an opportunity to close some things. I mean, opportunity, Dave, really today, you have what? Uh, five? One, two, three, four, five, six games that have potentially uh, could be decided today, the series. Yeah, I'll differ with you a little bit on the Blues, just because I understand it's round robin. And it's not even so much that they're 0-2. They have really been outplayed five on five in terms of shot volume, which is really rare for them. Like when they're on their game, they're holding the other team to to shots in the low 20s or below 20. And Colorado scored really late to win that first round robin game on the power play. But if you look at kind of the metrics, Colorado dictated play for most of that game. 
and Vegas did the same thing. Now, Colorado and Vegas are two really good teams. But remember, before this tournament started, we were kind of talking about compelling potential matchups. I thought a matchup in a series, a playoff series, between the Avalanche and Blues would be really interesting because the Avalanche are a really dynamic, explosive, speedy, skilled team, whereas the Blues can shut teams like that down. And it would almost be like the strength of one team going up against the strength of another team and which would give. Well, in their round robin, the Avs won. It was close, but it was clear that the Blues had trouble dealing with what Colorado was throwing at them. And now this is two games in a row. So Dallas has not had a particularly great round robin. They didn't have a maybe I should say their second game wasn't great where they got shut out by Colorado and got dominated. So Colorado has had two really strong performances. Let's see how the Blues do against the Stars. But I think if we were doing a Blues show right now, we would not be saying, well, it's terrible that the Blues are 0-2 in round robin play. That's probably not at the top of the list. The Blues were the third seed in their division last year and went on to win the Stanley Cup. So it's not that. It's more about when are we going to see the Blues team that we've come to know and love, <laughs> you know, over the last year plus and the team that won the Stanley Cup? Because I don't think we've seen that team yet. Um, you mentioned Pittsburgh-Montreal. That's clearly a big surprise. But as we just stated with Columbus-Toronto, it's going to take one more win for Montreal. And often that last one is the hardest to get. And we'll see how ferociously the Penguins dig in here they're playing at four today. Would you try and extend Tristan that Jari. series? They are okay. No, well, no, I said, well, I, no, I asked, would you? Would you? I, oh, I don't I know thought, what Mike Sullivan's going to do. I, I would. I would. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean I, and it may not even Murray. be. It may not even be a condemnation of Murray, but it's kind of like Torts shook yeah. things up a little bit by switching the goalies in yesterday's game. Maybe that's. I mean, it's something that that Mike Sullivan can do, and and I'm sure he and and the Pittsburgh players have confidence in Jari. But I don't know, Greg. I mean, I think if you're facing elimination, do you really need your coach to shake things up? I, I think that the of leaders of the Penguins need to set the tone. Cros and Crosby, Crosby is great. I mean, like, I rarely see Crosby not play at a high level. But right. having said that, the leaders of the Penguins need to go crashing through that gate today and set the tone. The Malkins, the Crosbys, the Latangs. They need to lead the way for Pittsburgh, even if they don't necessarily score, although that would be great for the Penguins. I think they need to lead by example in terms of how they're dictating play, how they're allowing the Penguins to, to dominate puck possession, to dominate the shot clock, to dominate scoring chances, which they did at the beginning of game one, if you recall. That's how the series started, and Price kind of neutralized it. And I think that's what, if you're, if you're a Pittsburgh fan, and that's your hometown. I understand that. So a lot of your friends and family may be feeling this way. If I were a Penguins fan, I would want to see an elimination, staving off type performance today. And maybe the chips don't fall your way. Maybe Price steals one. Maybe it's a fluky bounce. That can happen. But play well enough to give yourself a chance to win. And I think the the guys who are who are leading the way for Pittsburgh, and they have for a decade 
plus at this point need to be there at the front of the bus leading the way today? I think if they win today, they win the series. But that's, you know, I don't know if I'm really going out on a limb when it comes to that type of prediction. Um, I, I was asked this question yesterday on DAE about Stamkos and, you know, when do you think he's going to be back? And, you know, certainly everything we were hearing didn't seem like he was a guy that was knocking on the door ready to come back. But now that, you know, maybe he's out indefinitely, you know, you're going to have some other guys who are, are going to fill that role. And we've seen the first line with Palats and Points and Kucherov produce. We've also seen Mitchell Stevens get an opportunity with that. But we've also seen guys like Gord and Johnson really come up big and, and perform well. And what's scary, I, I think, for the rest of the league, Dave, is that, you know, I, I think we haven't really seen Anthony Sorelli get going yet. And you know, at some point when he does, this is what makes Tampa Bay so difficult to play. But what do you make of of that scenario, Stamkos out a bit here, and, you know, Curtis McElhaney, I know you and I have touched on this, probably getting an opportunity to play uh, a little bit later today, and I would think whoever wins this, and if Montreal wins, that would be the the first matchup, right? Yes, it would, because the winner of tomorrow's yeah. game between the Lightning and Flyers will get the top seed, whether it's in regulation or overtime. A win of any kind yeah. will give that team the top seed, and the top seed gets the lowest seed coming out of the play-in series, and the Canadians are the lowest seed. So if they can beat the Penguins then the top seed would get Montreal. If not, then it'll be whatever the lowest seed is. Florida is still alive as the 10 seed. And you've got the 9 and the 8 still alive, obviously, with Toronto and Columbus. So we'll have to see how that plays out. The Lightning have played very well without Stamkos in the lineup. We have stated that. Mitchell Stevens has done a great job slotting in in the role that he has put in, which dovetails to some extent or overlaps with some of the role that Steven Stamkos plays when he is healthy, right-handed face-off man, penalty killing, etc. So, look, I mean, the Lightning have gotten used now to playing without him in the lineup through the exhibition and these two round-robin games, in addition to before we paused the season, because Stamkos was out for a bit before the season paused. What I am curious to see, what I would like to see in tomorrow's game, I would like to see the Lightning get more than two power play chances. And this is not a dig on the officials. Although we can we can fairly dig the officials, and Let's we can maybe em. dive Let's into that. Him, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> believe it when him. the Capitals were shorthanded <laughs> six times yeah. against the Flyers. Where you were these penalties like, against the Lightning? <laughs> but I digress. The reason why I want the Lightning to get as many reps as, as the game will allow in the power play is this unit with Hedman and without Stamkos, the top unit, I want to see them get some touches. <laughs> and they scored against Boston, which was great, but they only had two chances and they had zero chances against Washington. So you're revamping things. Johnson, Tyler Johnson is now in that top unit. He and Point kind of have alternated taking what is usually Stamkos' spot at that left circle. But I'd like to see that unit get reps as well as the second unit because Johnson is usually in the second unit. So now you're now you're displacing, you know, the second unit as well 
and Johnson is no longer on that unit. So that's what I would like to see. What I'm curious to see is how intense this game actually is tomorrow. If you recall, Cooper mentioned before the round robin began, he kind of felt that the first round robin game and the last round robin game would be different. (laughs) He's like, I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know if one is going to be more physical and intense than the other. I just expect that they're going to be different. I don't know why he felt that way before they even started playing. But we know the first game against Washington was physical and was very intense. And we may be in a situation where do the Flyers and Lightning care that much about getting the top seed that they are going to want to go through a wall to get it? And I don't know the answer to that, but the Flyers have played a couple of games. And again, maybe it's based on their style, but I'll repeat what I said at the top of the show. I have not felt that their first two Raul Rambit games have felt like playoff games. And Tim even acknowledged that. And he said there is a difference in intensity. I feel the Lightning games, both of them, have been closer to what we're going to see starting next week in terms of intensity and the the feel of a playoff game. So what are we going to see tomorrow? I'm curious to see if the intensity dips a little bit. If both teams are like, all right, we've secured a top two seed. Let's just get through this game. We'll play it, but we're not going to go the extra, not even mile, that you would expect in a playoff game, but kind of what we're talking about with the Penguins today. The Penguins have to go more than the extra mile. They have to go the extra marathon, you know? Like, they have to push it as far as they possibly can, and it's hard to do that in a round-robin game where you're not facing elimination or these games don't have the potential to put you in a tough spot where you may be eliminated. On the other hand... We may see an intense game. I don't know. Maybe the Lightning want intense games. They have talked about that. They want to treat these games that way. So I'm curious to, to see when we when we reconvene on Monday as we get ready for the start of the first playoff series, I'm sure that we will look mostly in that direction forward. But to the extent we look backwards at the game on Saturday, I'll be curious what we're yeah. saying on Monday about how that game was played and the relative intensity level from the players on both sides. Well, Power Lunch will be there with you on Monday. Of course, you can listen to Lightning Power Play throughout, and we're going to have the game for you tomorrow. It should be a lot of fun. Dave and Phil on the call. I'll be having all the pregame, intermission, and postgame analysis. Kaylee Chelios will join us. Also, Brian Burns. We'll hear some hear for some players. We'll replay a little bit of the Tim Saunders interview, give you a background on what's going on with Philly once more, and it should be uh, a lot of fun tomorrow. Dave, enjoy the games today, and uh, we'll do it again. We'll talk to you tomorrow when we break down this game. Sounds good, Greg. Have a good weekend. Enjoy it. All right, Dave Michigan there. Steve Versnick, thank you, as always, behind the scenes. And to our audience, thank you for listening. We'll be with you again tomorrow for the broadcast. Tampa Bay taking on the Philadelphia Flyers. I am Greg Linelli. Enjoy the hockey today, everybody. You've been listening to the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play.